First Peter chapter three. Our study of our pilgrim journey. We're followers of Jesus. We feel like exiles in this world. We face hostility at times, even persecution in some places of the world. But all of us are steadied by God's grace. This is Peter's message to the church 2,000 years ago and still today. I want us to build on what we've heard, both in our songs, songs of victory and triumph. Our text, 1 John 5, that was read, reminds us that those who are in Christ Jesus have overcome the world because in Christ we are overcomers. This morning, I want us to capture that spirit of overcoming, perhaps even a spirit of being untouchable by the world in our godliness. As I was contemplating that word, I remembered the history of the untouchables. Maybe some of you would remember the story from cinema, but the real story is not unlike what has been told in book and movie form. The untouchables were special agents of the U.S. Bureau of Prohibition. Uh, For as briefly as the amendment lasted, there was a bureau to enforce the laws of prohibition. And you may remember the famous leader of this small band, six to 12 agents, who was Elliot Ness. From 1930 to 32, these agents enforced prohibition laws with a special focus at the request of President Herbert Hoover to take down Al Capone and his massive industry uh, that was undermining prohibition. Legendary for being fearless and incorruptible, these agents earned this nickname, the Untouchables, which was then adopted as their somewhat official designation. They were called untouchable because several agents had refused massive bribes to the tune of $40,000 a day were promised to them on their desks every Monday if they would turn a blind eye and not enforce the law. But they were untouchable by Chicago's crime outfit. They could not be swayed by the other side. They would not be threatened or bullied They would not be influenced to abandon their mission. In a strange kind of sad irony, Elliot Ness, who enforced the prohibition laws, his career took a downward turn and never recovered after a drunk driving incident. So in some ways, there was corruptibility. But in the nickname of the untouchables, we're reminded that as followers of Jesus Christ, there is a sense in which we should have a spirit of being untouchable, unfazed, unswayed from our mission of godly living. I know we feel like pilgrims and exiles. We feel outnumbered. We feel like we don't belong. We feel like there's constant influence, constant undermining of our ideals. But the reality is we should have this same spirit of and reputation of those who are untouchable. We cannot be swayed from our purpose. 
following Jesus Christ. In our text today, it seems as though Peter is unpacking for us the words that he heard from the mouth of Jesus in John 16 when Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus wanted his disciples to know, yes, I understand it will be hard. In this world, you will have tribulation. However, you are untouchable. Tribulation cannot keep you from a spirit of victory. We need these words from Christ. We need this big view of our mission and purpose. It may be all you have when life gets hard. The remembrance that you are a follower of Jesus Christ and therefore an overcomer. You will desperately want peace in the midst of opposition, hostility, or persecution. And it will only come from this truth. Christ has already overcome the world and you are on his side. If you can have peace in the midst of opposition, or tribulation, then this makes you something of an untouchable. Your pursuit of godliness will not be deterred by hostility, opposition, persecution. Listen to our text, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Here's our big idea this morning. Opposition to your pilgrim faith cannot diminish that faith. It's untouchable. In Christ, you are an overcomer. Opposition cannot diminish your faith. Therefore, it must not diminish your faith. The cannot is the reality for all those who are in Christ. But the experience of that day-to-day -day living in faith can be influenced, can be surrendered, that confidence. So the call of 1 Peter 3, 13-17 is this. Don't let that opposition erode your confidence. Don't let it diminish your faith. Be a member of this elite group of Christians who will insist on being untouched by opposition, by the rejection that for most of us as Americans comes in the form of maybe just scoffing at our old-fashioned religious ideas. 
Let me unfold from our text seven implications of Christ's victory for those times when we face opposition. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. That's our starting place. Really, we see something of that truth even in the verse that precedes our paragraph. We just read, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There was that foundation. Jesus is Lord. His favor is on those who are doing right and his judgment is on those who do evil. He's in charge. He's got this. He has overcome the world. So now who is there that can harm you if you are zealous for good works? If you're on his side, who can harm you? You see, there are implications to Christ's victory. If he is Lord and can reward the righteous and judge the wicked, then that should affect the way that we live. We should have a confidence We should feel that elite status of untouchable. I am an overcomer. So what are the implications of Christ's victory in our lives? What does his victory look like for me? That's what we want to answer. Number one, it would look like being zealous for good. You are zealous for good. That's implication number one of Christ saying, I have overcome the world. And then John writing later in his letter, if you are in Christ, you have overcome the world. The implication is, I don't yield to unrighteousness, but I am zealous for what is good. That's right there in verse 13. However, it comes to us in the form of a question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Think about this question that Peter throws out to the church. Now, Nero's persecution hasn't ramped up to the full-scale kind of physical threat of death kind of persecution that we know is part of history. But the opposition was mounting, hostility, There there was a lot of resistance to the way, the Christian faith. But in either the opposition or the outright persecution, don't we have a pretty good answer to the question, who is there to harm you? The church in one voice would have shouted in unison just a few years after this letter, uh, how about Nero? Or how about my family that exiled me? cut me out of the family estate, isolated me, ostracized me because of my faith in Christ, we could probably come up with a pretty long list of who there is that harms Christians because of their desire to do good. But is that what Peter was getting at when he's asking the question, who is there to harm you? You see, when we read on to verse 14, we realize we've got some thinking to do. Verse 14 starts with the word but, so that's a word of contrast. It's going to contrast what comes after with what comes before. So now we have to stop and think, how is the word suffer for righteousness sake 
a contrast to verse 13, harm you if you do good. They actually sound like synonyms. Verse 13, harm if you do good. Verse 14, suffer for righteousness sake. That does not appear to be a contrast. Suffer and harm seem to be the same thing. But what this is telling us is that we have to look deeper into that question of verse 13. This isn't just a fill in the blank with who stands in your way, who's, who's been the opposition to your Christian faith, who's been hostile to your effort at Christianity. No, it's a deeper question than that. In verse 13, Peter is reminding us that ultimately, no one can harm us. Oh, when you read the question, so who could harm you if you're a Christian? Uh, Nero or the whole Roman Empire or the Sanhedrin. Look what they did to Jesus and the apostles. Peter's like, no, I mean, who can ultimately harm you? Who can, who can touch you if you have been converted, if you have been reborn, Peter said in chapter 1? and you are living a life of Christ-likeness, if you are living as a slave to righteousness, who can touch you in your faith? Peter in 13 is actually asking a rhetorical question. He is in essence saying, no one can touch you if your pursuit is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then verse 14 offers this contrast, but... If there are those cases where physical suffering comes to you for doing right, and it's going to, even then you will be blessed. Peter's point in verse 13 is keep doing right. Keep doing right. Nothing and no one can keep you from pleasing God. You go to the darkest place in our world where Christianity is aggressively persecuted and no threat of injury or death can keep any of those Christians from pleasing God. Oh, it may cost them something, but nobody can keep them from pleasing God. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs and how... By God's spirit, they nearly miraculously embraced and celebrated the torture and death. It was if they were detached from even their body of suffering, so enraptured by this spirit of confidence that nothing can touch my faith. The scriptures say the implications of Christ overcoming the world are first that we can be zealous for good. Nothing diminishes that. Peter has rehearsed that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, where he says we are born again to a living hope. And he even says there, you may encounter some trouble. That may be necessary, he says, but your inheritance is secure. As we sang, we will have the celebration of heaven when we hear this call to live for Christ. Paul would tell the Philippian church, for to me to live is Christ 
and even to die is gain. I'm untouchable. Persecution, distress, tribulation, it cannot hinder the renewal of the inner man. Paul says, I will not surrender my faith and my confidence in the victory that Christ has won. So keep doing what's right. That's an implication of Christ's victory. Number two, implication number two, because Christ has overcome, even if you suffer, you are blessed by God. Verse 14, even if you should suffer, and that's real suffering now. Remember the first question, if any harm, who can harm you? Well, ultimately no one. Not even spiritual wickedness in high places, not even the devil himself. We are secure in Christ. But now we're talking about this momentary life that we live and the affliction that we'll suffer. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, what then? What are the implications of Christ overcoming the world when it looks like the world has a lot of power to cause me harm? Even if that's the case, and it is for many believers around the world, you will be blessed. Well, that word is used quite a bit. Blessed received a whole lot of attention in the era of social media, right? Because you can hashtag blessed, right? And you can wear it on shirts and hats. And I know some of you have the blessed shirts. I've seen them. And that's fine. You are indeed blessed. Peter is just saying, listen, even if you should face opposition, remember this foundational principle that is really the outcropping of verse 13. No one can truly harm you. And even if they give it their best effort and there is momentary suffering in this life, you are blessed. But what does that mean for us? When Jesus preached what we call the Sermon on the Mount, there, there was a little bit of understanding of what it means to be blessed. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Well, that is exactly our context. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're having a bad day being persecuted, a faithless moment, you could say, hey, that sounds great, but what about now? But Jesus' point is, that hope, real faith in knowing that you are secure in the kingdom of heaven is helpful now. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are Jesus' words unfolding something of what it means to be blessed. Your reward is great in heaven. We have all kinds of questions that Jesus doesn't answer. What, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? Better mansion than somebody else? Are these the crowns that are talked about? 
I mean, so are persecuted people more rewarded than non-persecuted Christians? Listen, we don't know. We just have this word from our God who says, even if they try to hurt you in this life, though they cannot ultimately harm you, even if you should suffer in this life, you have my promise that your reward in heaven will be great. So just hear those words and believe them. We receive it by faith that it's true that we are blessed even when we face opposition. Some of you gather at a family reunion and face forms of opposition for your faith. Your neighbors don't understand what you're doing with your kids or why you go to church. Your, your, your boss doesn't understand why you're asking time off or something. You want to serve in some capacity. And, and, and you take a little bit of flack for that. Just, just know it's like receiving a paycheck. You are piling up reward in heaven for any opposition to your efforts at righteousness and advancing the kingdom of God. A third implication of Christ's victory. You choose allegiance to Christ. Because Christ has overcome, I can say, because of his grace in my life, I choose Jesus as Lord. And that's not just for salvation, but that's, that's always. And so I hold my tongue knowing that a soft answer turns away wrath. Oh, I could go off and say what I need to say to that coworker, my spouse, or as a young person to my parent. But because Jesus is Lord and I'm going to recognize that, that's going to change the way I live right now in this moment. Some of you are bombarded by fears and they crowd out the reality that Jesus is Lord and is in complete control and you should be trusting him. You're not choosing to obey what Peter commands us here. Beginning in verse 14, those who might trouble you, oppose you, have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. It's an interesting contrast. Don't be afraid or troubled. We would expect something like find your refuge in Jesus. And that's true. But Peter steers us a little different way, kind of through the back door to refuge. And he says the refuge is Instead of being troubled by the opposition, remember Jesus is Lord. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the one God sent, he is Lord. He reigns. Rather than fearing the opposition and letting them dictate your life and your responses, hence that word being troubled, stirred up about it and always trying to figure out how to address it. No, Rather than fearing the opposition and letting them dictate your life, instead recognize Christ is Lord and let him dictate your life. Stop being troubled by all the opposition. And remember this, my allegiance is to Jesus Christ and he has already overcome the world. 
It's a daily spiritual exercise. The text even emphasizes, do this in your heart. Not just Sunday when we sing Jesus is Lord, that he reigns, but no, in your heart, make this allegiance known. Choose Jesus as Lord. It'll affect whether you read your Bible or not this week. It'll affect how you drive in some cases. What you watch on TV. When you decide, eh, I don't think this song needs to be in the repertoire, my daily listening. It'll have that kind of influence in your life. That's what allegiance to Jesus does. It dictates how we live because we are recognizing, we are setting apart, we are sanctifying Christ as Lord. Now that setting apart and sanctifying just means our recognition of it because it's already true. You're not giving him something he doesn't already have when you say Jesus is Lord. But you are surrendering to it. You choose allegiance to Christ. And in that allegiance, our confidence can, can swell. We can remember Christ is the overcomer and I'm with him. Number four, another implication of Christ overcoming the world we as his followers are known for hope. Hope. There's an explanation in part as to how we, in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And the answer is by being prepared to explain your hope. They're not separate instructions as much as one kind of feeds the other. How do I live out the reality Jesus is Lord? In part, it will look like you are a person of hope. Lordship unfolds in hope. If you're a hopeless person, or we could say always fearful of the future, always worried and uncertain about stuff, I have a hard time believing you, you really think Jesus is seated on the throne, the psalmist says, doing whatever he pleases. Kind of feels like you're not sure if Jesus is Lord or not. And thus, you've got to run around and make everything work out. No, lordship unfolds in hope. In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy by always being prepared to justify, to explain, to defend your hope. There's an implication here that unbelievers will at least at times recognize a difference in you because of your hope. Remember how Peter began his letter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If our hope truly is in the risen Lord, by his resurrection, validated as our Savior, if that's our hope, Jesus will save us from our sin and take us to heaven, that hope should be evident in the way we live our lives. P. 
Peter is implying not too subtly that our hope is evangelistic. The kingdom of God is not helped by your pessimism. I know we can all be prone to it. You look at the stories on the news, the politics, overreaching government, dictators prospering. Everybody hates what Russia is doing, but nobody really does anything about it. We can, we can get sucked into this vacuum of pessimism. But let me encourage you in those conversations to be very guarded about when that pessimism is leaking out because if it's around the unbeliever and you sound just like they do, they probably aren't going to ask you about any distinctive hope in your life. I know your body may hurt and you may be sick all the time, but is there any hope that transcends the constant saga of your woes? Pessimism isn't a virtue. It need not even be a personality trait. The gospel isn't an isn't advanced in your complaining, in your constant griping. That's why the Bible is so simple and clear. Let everything be done without grumbling and complaining. Why? Because nobody wants to hear it? Well, that's probably true too. But because ultimately, grumbling, complaining, ingratitude, pessimism... Altogether, it just contributes to undermining what we claim is our hope. Share hope. Speak of hope. You can bemoan politics and world affairs and bodily suffering. Just always add a punctuation mark of hope at the end of this discussion. And remind people that God's grace is being evident in your life, even through your bodily pain. Remind people that, man, this is frustrating what you're seeing in the news. But Proverbs says, the purpose of the Lord will stand. Throw that out to the unbeliever. Let them stew on that and finally say, what do you mean when you say that all the time? But who has ever done that to you? Who has ever thought of you as the the hope sunshine in the office or in the neighborhood, and has come to you saying, what, what is that? They may be annoyed by it, but they may be intrigued by it. And ultimately, the scripture says, they may be drawn by it. There's a lot at stake this week in the way you respond to hardship. Will lordship the lordship of Jesus Christ, unfold in your hope this week. Number five, because Christ has overcome, we can have a clear conscience. Verse 15 says that even in our defense of hope, we need to do it with gentleness and respect. The word is fear. So a gentleness toward those that are asking about our hope and a fear of the Lord that recognizes I had better be accurately representing him in the way I communicate my hope. I'm not demeaning or degrading and judgmental. I'm not better than this person. No, I'm pointing to what makes the difference. Jesus Christ, my hope is in him. 
Hope is not angry and attacking. Hope is eager and inviting. Our evangelism should reflect the engaging, winsome spirit that Jesus manifests all through the Gospels. Perhaps most evidently at the well in Samaria with the woman with multiple husbands trying to mask all of that brokenness in theological bickering and with compassion and truth we get this winsome picture of hope offered to unbelievers. A clear conscience that comes because we are gentle toward unbelievers and fearful in representing God. Because we're approaching nearly 50 years of this pro-life war against abortion, I was looking back through some of the history. You know, in the name of Christianity, great Bodily harm has been done. Threats have been made. Members in denominational churches have killed abortionists. Christians have have stood on sidewalks and chanted, burn in hell. All kinds of things that don't seem to capture gentle and respectful, fearful, that would allow for a good conscience. So we are reminded that we are easily swept up in our pride. Somehow our standing in Christ entitles us to treat others as if we'll be the ones who open the gate to heaven for them. And they'd better please us and measure up to our standard. Let's go back to the picture of Christ and find a great weight on our conscience to make sure that our evangelism is as passionate, as truthful, and as compassionate as his was. So that in no place we have an excuse for not living out this hope with a clear conscience. Another implication of Christ's victory, number six. Because Christ has overcome your righteousness will be vindicated. There in verse 16. You have a good conscience so that for this purpose, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, we can be brief here. This vindication may happen in your lifetime. It may It might. There there is the potential for that. But there is no guarantee in this life that your suffering at the hostility or opposition of those who oppose your faith will be vindicated. You don't have that guarantee in this life. But we do have the guarantee that ultimately our efforts at righteousness will be vindicated. In the day of judgment, Peter has already told us this. You can look across the page, chapter 2 and verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's our certainty. If it happens before that, may God be pleased, maybe even to draw them to repentance and faith. And they recognize they greatly sinned against you and against Christ. 
But that may not happen in this life. But that doesn't undermine our confidence and our sense of being untouchable. Because I hear God's words and I I look here at this verse and I say, wait a minute. Even if I'm never vindicated in this life, even if it seems that evil men prosper, and it will seem that way, the Psalms are full of this question before God. Why do the evil prosper? We have this confidence. Our faith can remain untouchable that one day, God will make right, not just evil in general, but every evil deed will be accounted for. And every time your faith stood in the face of opposition, it will be duly noted in the day of judgment and God will say, yes, that was righteousness being advanced and you opposed it. There is a reason every mouth will be stopped of the unbelievers in the day of judgment. It's because every opportunity that they saw righteousness and common grace will be rehearsed before them so that the right will be vindicated and the evil will be punished. That's the kind of confidence we have because Christ has overcome not one moment of hostility will be endured without reward and without vindication. That's the completeness of Christ's victory. Final implication. You can trust in God's providence. At first glance, verse 17 is too obvious. For it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Well, I think we would all agree with that. Of course, it would be better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And there's the notation there about God's will as well. Peter is saying it is better to be the righteous person who is suffering for it than to be an unrighteous person causing the suffering. He's not saying, well, as a Christian, it's better for you to suffer for doing good than to sin and get in trouble and be punished for that. That's that's the over-obvious nature of that interpretation. Well, of course it's better to do good. That's obedience. It pleases God. That's always better than doing evil. And if you sin, you should expect the chastening hand of God to steer you back. So which one is better really doesn't need much attention. It's obvious. But that's not Peter's point. Peter's point is, in this context of how you should respond to suffering, remembering that you will be rewarded, you're blessed when you suffer for righteousness, and those who afflict the suffering will stand before God in the day of judgment and give an account Now the conclusion is, it is better to be in this category, to be one who is advancing the kingdom even at great personal loss, even at the cost of suffering. It would be better to be on God's side than to stand before him and be his enemy. This is an exclamation point 
on Peter's point that we are untouchable. We have chosen the winning side. We belong to Christ. He has overcome the world. And this is the place to be. You leave here today as a Christian and your standing is, I belong to the overcomer. And it is now and eternally true that it is better to belong to Christ, even if I'm counted as a pilgrim, an exile, the minority, than to be in the majority of those who stand against God's kingdom because they will face the overcomer. And Peter tucks away in this last verse, it's better for you to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. You know, if you were a Christian in the Far East, most of North Africa and its Muslim influence, a lot of Europe, there are a lot of places in the world, the Middle East, that it is not easy to be a Christian. And if those brothers or sisters sat among us today visiting the States, they would wonder at the luxury and the freedom, the blessing that is ours. And as much as we could feel guilty for the kind of freedom we have, and as much as they could be tempted to envy us, we should both recognize, wait a minute, their suffering, our freedom, is all a under the umbrella of God's providence. The text is clear. Your suffering for doing good will only be by the will of God. You can trust him. Remembering it is better to be a believer persecuted than to be an unbeliever persecuting. You're on the winning side. The implication of Christ overcoming the world is that you are an overcomer. Nothing can touch you apart from God's will. And so the opposition of this world cannot diminish our faith. Because of who you are in Christ, because of what you have in Christ, because of what you've been called to do for Christ, you are, in this sense, untouchable. Yours is a confidence that should not be swayed by hostility or opposition. A pilgrim, yes, but one who is ever marching toward fuller and fuller victory. Your zeal for good is untouchable. Your blessing from God is untouchable. Your allegiance to Christ is untouchable. Your hope of salvation is untouchable. Your clean conscience is untouchable. Your future validation is untouchable. Your faith and standing in God's care is untouchable. In the New Testament, in trying to describe this pilgrim life, it often tells us of this Christ-like optimism. It's in Philippians 4, a peace that passes all understanding, untouched by circumstance. It's in Ephesians 6, be strong in the power of his might. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. It's possible. You can hold your ground. You're untouchable. Romans 6, consider yourself dead to sin, 
uninfluenced by it, untouched by it. Instead, consider yourself alive to righteousness. It's in 2 Corinthians 4. Our momentary affliction is not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. It's untouchable. It's in Romans 8. Because we're secure in the love of God, we are even more than conquerors through him who loved us. So don't be moved. Don't be rattled. Don't be troubled, the text says. Don't be a victim. Don't give up any ground. By the grace of God, by the word of God, by the spirit of God, knowing the purpose of God, knowing the promise of God, seeing the advancing kingdom of God. Be reminded by God's word to us today that we are untouchable. Take heart, brothers and sisters. Christ has overcome the world. Heavenly Father, thank you for the work of Jesus. By this text, give these, your people, a confidence this week. A spirit of victory. May we May we throw ourselves into this victory march, this parade that celebrates Christ as Lord, even as we long for the day when, when all the world, all the universe, all creation, things in heaven and things in the earth and things below the earth will all bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. He is the victor. He is the overcomer. And this being true, our faith in him is sure. So drive away the perceived power of temptation. Drive away fear and doubt. And by our faith in Christ, give us the spirit of overcomers. so that our hope will be seen, Christ will be known, and our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be glorified in his church. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.